The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. fine-looking bunch. I'm glad you're here this morning. We're going to be back in the book of 1 Timothy. If you have a Bible and you want to follow along with me in 1 Timothy chapter 6 is the primary text we'll be in this morning. I'm going to launch off in the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew chapter 5. So mark that there, Matthew chapter 5, and then we're going to go to the last chapter of Timothy chapter 6. Verse 17 through 19. So if you'll mark one of those. When Greg and I mapped out this uh, course of sermons between here and the fall, we made some executive decisions to move a few passages around. If you're type A, that is going to drive you nuts. <laughs> so, But hang in there with me. So today we're going to launch into the sixth chapter of Timothy Verse 17 uh, through 19. So when, uh, when, we decide, when Greg and I decided to do this, we felt like it was appropriate to, to take this last week, this week, and a couple more weeks to address some people-specific issues in this letter. So that's what we're going to do. When God redeems you, when he calls you to faith, you enter this complex human institution called the church. <laughs> You're a part of it. So God knew that. Timothy knew that. And this is exactly what this book is for. Paul knew that as well. He's right. To Timothy. So 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17 through 19 is where we're going to be this morning. Everyone ready to go? Buckle up. Here we go. Let's pray real quick and then we'll jump off into what God has in store for, for us. Father, give us eyes to see and minds to process and hearts to apply the precious contours of our faith given by the way, by way of the gospel of Christ Jesus. We long, we long in this very moment for the Holy Spirit to move among us and make application. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus' magisterial and compelling Sermon on the Mount, as detailed in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 5. If you're there, if you're looking at Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, you'll see that Matthew opens this narrative with a couple things I want you to see before we go into some other verses of this sermon. Jesus' magisterial and compelling Sermon on the Mount. Look with me at verse 1. He says, seeing the crowds, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, he says, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. He went up to the mountain. Then in verse 2 right there, he says he opened his mouth. These are important things for us. Jesus ascends the mountain. This is a biblical indicative. This is a biblical hint that divine revelation is about to occur. The people that Jesus is going to preach this sermon to are Old Testament people. They're thinking of Moses. They're thinking of him ascending a mountain. So that's important for us. Jesus ascends the mountain. Matthew tells us that in the first verse of chapter 5. And then in verse 2 he says he opens his mouth. This is important for us as well. This is Matthew's way of indicating that not only is divine revelation about to occur, but it is about to carry a sense of gravity. There is, a, there is a depth to what Jesus is about to say. There's an earnestness. There's a seriousness to this. Jesus ascends the mountain. Matthew tells us he opens his mouth. And then Jesus will descend into two chapters. He descends into two chapters in Matthew that are both remarkable and unprecedented in the Christian faith up until this point. This is critical to where we're going. Lock in here, Okay. The entire Jewish perspective of religion will be altered in the next two chapters of this book by way of Jesus' sermon. Among other things, okay, 
catch this. Among other things, there's a lot more going on here. Jesus is beginning to pull eternity. This is important. He's beginning to pull eternity, the kingdom of heaven. That's a unique phrase to Matthew. He's beginning to pull eternity into the present. Okay? Jesus, not only by his person, by his arrival, by the mighty acts, the miracles he's doing, but by his word, he begins to press into the minds of people this notion. Christians are to operate with a view towards the end. In part, that is what Jesus is doing in this sermon. For you, the people that are theologically minded, he's bringing eschatology into the present. The already, but not yet. You've probably heard that at some point. This is important. Jesus is doing a lot more in this sermon. He's doing a lot more in this sermon, but he begins with the idea of the kingdom of heaven in order to call you and I into some things. He's saying that what you do on this earth has an effect in heaven. In part, that's what Jesus is telling us. This is radical in many ways. It's radical for the time that he's speaking. It's radical for us today. You are living in ways for the unseen. You are, as a Christian. So then Jesus begins to tell us how to apply this eternal outlook. He begins to tell us how to do that to all sorts of things like prayer, fasting, and then, not the least of which, is money and riches. Jesus talks about this a lot. He talks about money and riches a lot, which is what we're going to deal with this morning in the context of 1 Timothy. So here's some of the key statements from Jesus in this sermon. Chapter 6, if you want to flip over to Matthew chapter 6. Some of the key statements from Jesus for our context this morning. Chapter 6 and verse 1, he's talking about giving to the needy. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward, there's the word, reward from your Father who is in heaven. You hear that? Reward, heaven. So he's starting to give you this language here. Look at verse 19. This is, this is really key for where we're going today. Chapter 6, verse 19. Hear the words of Jesus here. He's talking about treasures. He says, do not lay up for yourself treasures. You hear that word? Treasures on this earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves, there it is again, treasures in heaven. Treasures, heaven. You hear this going on. He says, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is doing a couple things here. First, listen to this. This is critical, okay? I need you to reach up here and grab this. The idea of rewards, this is so critical. The Orthodox Christian faith is built off of this. The idea of rewards or treasures in the New Testament, it is never, ever, 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 ever tied to your justification. Ever. Ever. I can't say that enough. It's never tied to your justification. It's never tied to your standing before God. I need to be incredibly clear here. Jesus, nor anybody else, ever in the New Testament comes even close to framing rewards or treasures in heaven in the context of forgiveness of sins. Not in the context of sins. Jesus is not speaking of that. Reach up here and grab this. The Christian faith is, as you navigate the Christian faith, you will be tempted to to pull away from this idea that what you do on earth is not tied directly to your forgiveness of sins. We believe in faith by grace alone. It's all grace from the top to the bottom. So you've got to hold on to that. 
Okay, you're going to have to hold on to that this morning as we walk through this. But the second thing that Jesus does here is he begins to change everything with respect to rewards in heaven. More specifically, this is this is what's going on here. He begins to tie finances, wealth, riches into this idea of the inner person. In part, what Jesus is doing here is he begins to tie your finances into your godliness, into your holiness. Okay, grace-based living. Then he ties all of that into eternity. You tracking with me here? He begins to tie your finances into your inner person living, into holiness, and then he cloaks all of that in this idea of eternity. I'm going to explain that more to you before long. Jonathan Pennington, who's a scholar that I think is a fine scholar in my estimate. I saw him a couple weeks in Louisville, a couple weeks ago in Louisville. He's a Matthew scholar. I think he thinks very clear about the book of Matthew. He's been, a, he's been, his writing has been immeasurable. In my understanding of Matthew, the way that I think through the book, it's been a great joy to me. But he says this about Jesus' words here. He says that one's rewards, they can either be heavenly or earthly. Your rewards can be heavenly or they can be earthly. The choice between these two orienta- is your orientation to the world or your heart stance. Okay, he's saying that your rewards can be earthly or they can be heavenly. The choice between these two is the orientation you take to the world or the way your heart is oriented towards it. I hope that makes sense to you. So here's the key statement. Write this down. Sear this into your brain. Whatever you want to do. Here is the key statement for today that I'm going to run with. What you do on this earth as a Christian... In the local church, Timothy, this book is written from Paul to Timothy about the local church. What you do on this earth as a Christian in the local church, it has an effect on the life to come. It has an effect on eternity. It does. It's exactly what Paul is saying here. What you do on this earth as a Christian in the local church, it has an effect on the life to come. It has an effect on eternity. So here's the question. The question is this, how do we correctly orient what we do with one of the single most important and challenging aspects of our life? Money, riches, wealth. How do we correctly orient that? That's what we're going to deal with this morning. So to the text, everybody ready? 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul. He says, As for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us everything to enjoy, provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. So they may take hold to that, to that which is truly life. We can translate truly life as eternal life as well. As for the rich in the present age, this phrase creates an issue for us, right? This phrase creates an issue for us. Paul implements a qualifier to this passage. As for the rich in the present age. In the subsequent sections of this chapter, in in chapter 6, which Greg will deal with accordingly later in the summer, Paul is speaking to those who are aspiring to be rich. In this section, he's speaking to those that are rich, people that are rich in this present age. So typically, this creates a couple reactions from us. Okay? When Paul lays out this 
qualifier of sorts as to the rich, we typically do one of two things. We either say this, we disqualify ourselves because we aren't among the rich. We begin, our thoughts begin to linger to some other person, some other family, some other situation, and you say, I'm not a part of that context. The second thing that may happen to this is you may be, in a holy way, you may be, you may reflect on your financial situation and you may be comfortable in your mind affirming that you indeed have done well. You say, I've done well for my life. I have everything I need. I probably can be considered rich in the present age. So this is my position on it. I've got to come down on it somewhere, so I'm just going to level with you. This is my position on it. Before I say this, I want to affirm very clearly. I grew up in a rural town in South Carolina. I grew up in a church that was on the outskirts of a rural town. Okay? I spent almost two decades in a church where there was real poverty. I sat next to kids that did not know where the next pair of shoes would come from. I was peers. I was friends with kids that they came to church on Wednesday night because that was the best meal that they would have in a month. I know poverty. I have seen it. I have lived beside it. I have walked amongst it. I have close friends that grew up like this. So I want to affirm there's poverty in this world. There's poverty in this very county. There is real poverty in this county. But I think most of us in this room, I have no idea what anybody's financial situation, this is a general statement, I think most people in this room would be categorized as rich in the context of the broader broader world. If you didn't know this, America is not the only country in the world. There is some very, very, very poor situations out there. You can check this when you get home and want to Google, but almost over 40% of the wealth in the world resides right here in this country. Over 40% of it. That's staggering. The, the net worth of Americans is really staggering in, in contrast to other countries. We are a product of a free market economy. The Apostle Paul, he did not know what free market economics were. He didn't know what modern capitalism was when he wrote this letter. He didn't understand economics as articulated by the 18th century Scottish e- economist and moral philosopher Adam Smith in Wealth of Nations. He did not understand that. He had no concept of that. He didn't realize that my wife this week could do a real-time business with a man in Bangladesh via WebEx and bill him in real time. He did not realize that. Apostle Paul did not operate in a, in a world where compounding interest was the eighth wonder of the world. He had no idea what compounding interest was for the most part. So we do not live in a first century Greco-Roman society. I'm solid on that. That's where I land. We don't live there. Listen to this. This is important. We all fall underneath this text in some way. I believe that. Everybody in this room in some way individually falls under this. And if we don't individually, by God, we fall underneath it as a church. As West Ashley, South Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, in the 21st century, we have more access to intellectual, human, and monetary capital than most of the church ever in the history of Christendom. I'm not talking about the present church. I'm talking about since the Israelites were redeemed. Past and present, this church has more access to resources than any of them. I'm solid on that. That's where I stand on that. Not, so do you understand that? We do not get to disqualify ourselves. I love you, but we don't. It's the way it is. So to review, what's the key statement? What you do on this earth as a Christian in the local church, it has an effect on the life to come. It has an effect on eternity. 
How do we correctly orient one of the single most challenging aspects of our life? Money, wealth, or riches? Paul continues. He gives us directive on this. Chapter 6, verse 17. Here the second part of the verse. Paul says, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Paul, what Paul's doing here is he's going after two primary issues in this verse. He's going after arrogance. You see the word haughty there, and he's going after dependence. He's giving us wisdom on how to avoid two real real and unique perils to wealth. I think these are unique to wealth, particularly in our context, okay? So he's giving us two things here. Wealth, this is, this is I'm going to belly up to this statement too. Wealth, people are all over the place. Men that I love, men that I esteem, that I respect, they're all over the place on this, but this is where I land. Wealth in and of itself is not evil. It's not. But it is extremely challenging. It's extremely challenging. It's unique in its challenges. This has been helpful to me through the years because I come from a business background. I'm a corporate man by trait. I've I've thought and written about the intersection of wealth and money and faith. I've thought and written about it a ton. And if God gives me life and I'm able to do it and he gives me energy, I'm going to do a lot of work on that in the future, I hope. And so it's something that's occupied my mind. I've had to wrestle with it philosophically. I've had to wrestle with it pragmatically on the ground for the better part of 12 or 14 years of my life i've had to i've had to walk through this stuff balance sheets and income statements are important to me compounding interest when i'm the beneficiary of it is something that i enjoy that's just the the god's honest truth on it i like those things i think they're marvelous i don't think god is opposed to those things i'd go to the wall over that i really would but there are real perils to all of it There are real and present dangers to all of this stuff, two of which are arrogance and dependence. It's right there in the text. Two of which are arrogance and dependence. Paul didn't know the modern realities, the realities of modern economics, but by God, God did. He did. He knew exactly what was going on. So the Bible is applicable. It's relevant. It's relevant even to us today. So look at what he says here. He says, charge them not to be haughty. This, is, this idea here is arrogance. I'm going to make an exegetical decision here and jettison this whole thing. I'm just going to touch on it for a minute and then we're going to move on. But arrogance, what Paul is getting at here is this idea that you have more value just because you're a person of wealth. That's what he's getting at in, this, in the statement here. It, he's, he's saying basically to us in modern terms, don't be a narcissist. If you've done well for yourself, if you've done well for yourself in a modern context, don't be a narcissist. Cool it. If you've done well for yourself, that's what he's saying. Don't be arrogant. Don't consider yourself of more value than other ones because you've done well in this world. The second thing that he does is he tells us about dependence. He says there's an uncertainty in riches, but we should hope on God. So what about dependence? How do we avoid dependence upon riches? How do we do that? The answer is easy. You flip the object of your hope. That's what he's doing in this verse. Paul flips the object of the hope in these verses. Do you see that? He's giving us two paths here. He's saying you can hope in temporal, tangible riches or you can hope in God. And then he directs us to hope in God. It's right there in the text. It's plain as day. But here's the kicker. Here's the kicker to all of it. Hope in and of itself is not holy. You catch that? Hope in and of itself is not holy. Only rightly aligned hope. 
Do you see that in the text? You have to fight to align or orient your hope correctly. It doesn't come naturally as a Christian. (laughs) I wish I had better news for you. This is the product of the fall. Our hopes get misguided. They get misaligned. They get off track. It's a reality. This is a ramification of the fall. You have to fight to guide or orient your hope towards God. You have to labor. You do. You have to labor in this. How do you fight to align your hope to God? You cling to Jesus, you cling to the gospel, and you live in everyday moments with the conscious awareness that your life, and particularly what you do with your finances, has an effect on heaven. It has an effect on eternity. You have to live and think beyond yourself. You have to live with heaven in mind. That's what Paul's getting at in here in this verse. I just want to let you know, if there's anybody in here this morning that's wrestling with this idea of Christianity, if you're wrestling with the faith and church and you don't know what it means to come to faith and you have no idea some of the stuff we get up here and talk about all the time, I just want to say to you, this passage we're looking at is written to Christians specifically, but I just want to say this to you. Place your hope in Jesus. He's the great mediator of our faith. Come to Him. Repent and believe. He longs to forgive you of your sins and reconcile you to a heavenly Father that cannot look favorably upon you apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. The gospel is freely offered to you. And your life can be justified. I long, I long for you to live for eternity. I long for you to live for something beyond yourself. The gospel. I love the gospel. I love the gospel. I'm broken hearted for people in this room, for people in this community, people in this world that have misguided hope. I'm broken hearted for people that are without the hope of Jesus. But I'm also brokenhearted for people that have the hope of the gospel, people like me, but it becomes disoriented. It becomes misguided at times. It's a continual fight to guide your hope. It's a continual fight. So Paul gives us a qualifier. He then flips the object of our hope in these verses, and then he challenges us to avoid the perils of wealth. And then he makes a call to us. Then he makes a petition to us. Look at this. In verse 18 and 19, he says they are to do good work. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What Paul is doing here effectively is he's issuing this call to reorient the way in which we live in the current moment. These verses are a call, they're a command to make eternal investments. Part of the way in which we make an eternal investment is through our riches. This is clear in the text. Brit's not telling you this. God Almighty is telling you this. What you do with your money has an impact on eternity. Point blank. Point blank. Furthermore, this passage, there's a paradox that underlies this passage. 
Let me explain to you what I mean. There's a paradox that underlines this passage. This call founded in Jesus. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? I told you he calls us. He starts connecting riches and wealth to this idea of holiness, godliness. And then he cloaks, ties all of it into the idea of eternity. So Jesus is making these connections here. This call in this verse, which is founded in Jesus, it links money with the inner person, the heart, and then ties it to eternity. And it ushers us into one of the greatest Christian paradoxes ever. This call that Paul unfolds here, it leads us into one of the great and seemingly contradictory positions in all of human life and experience. Christianity does this to you in general. Christianity is going to call you to do things that your mind and your heart and your flesh say that makes absolutely no sense. That runs contrary to everything that's in me. There's Christian paradoxes everywhere. This is one of them. This is it. Here's the paradox. If you don't hear anything else I'm saying today, hear this. The paradox in this verse is the call in this passage is, to, is the call to avoid in some ways personal fulfillment as the ultimate goal of life. When we avoid personal fulfillment as the ultimate goal of life, we actually gain a better and richer personal fulfillment because we become a source of eternal impact, of heavenly impact. I hope that's clear. I'm going to repeat this again. When we avoid personal fulfillment as the ultimate goal of life, when you give your life away, pocketbook and all, you actually gain a better and richer personal fulfillment because we become the source of eternal impact, of heavenly impact. That's the paradox in these verses. As a Christian, when you sacrifice and you live generously, you gain fulfillment because you become a source of eternal impact. If you don't believe me, try it. If you don't believe me, try it. I've never felt more joyful than when I've given it away. That's the God's honest truth. I believe this from the Bible. I believe it from my personal experience. My wife and I have intentionally labored for 12 years to build a marriage around this. To live with an open hand in our home, in the church, and in this community. That's another discussion that we'll talk about later on. But the summation is this. Your life on this earth is part of a bigger story. It's a bigger narrative that God's unfolding. It's a larger story that He's writing in redemption of His people. What you do in this moment, in this life, with your money, with your service, it counts for all eternity. Do you understand that? Do you live that out? Are you living that out? Samuel Zamuri, who is the president of United Fruit for 25 years. Some of you probably remember United Fruit. It was around in the early 40s, 50s, some of the 60s. I think it, it folded up and, and went went underneath another umbrella. But Samuel, Samuel Zamuri, he was the CEO of United Fruit for 25, or 25 years or so in the 30s and 40s. He was known as the Banana Man. His name was the Banana Man because he made a massive fortune off of bananas. Some of you probably know the story. His story is, is really both romantic and then at the same time, it's, honest to goodness, it's kind of miserable, to be honest with you. This is a footnote. I give you footnotes. Do, here's another footnote. The reason Christian history is important, when you read history from a Christian perspective, you do it as part romantic 
is part someone that endears history, but also is partly someone that lives and, and understands it objectively. You have to be an analyst with history. So that's kind of how I read things. Anyway, that's the way you're supposed to live the Christian life, but that's philosophical musing and I'm done. But anyway, so his story is romantic and at times it's miserable, but the way he made money was off the ripe banana. This is fascinating to me. He made money off the ripe banana. In the early 1900s, if you don't know anything about the early 1900s, it was not 2019 in Charleston, but in the early 19 1900s, the bananas were imported to Charleston, but they were also imported to Mobile, Alabama. Mobile, Alabama. And the young Sam, he was probably a teenager at this point, he would go to the docks in Mobile, Alabama, and he watched the ships come in with these bananas. And when they arrived, the importers, the companies that imported the bananas, when they arrived, they would look at these stems of bananas, and the ripe ones they would set to the side. They would only take the green ones because their logistics, their system of delivering them, only allowed them time to get the green bananas to the market. So what happened is that he ended up he ended up finding his niche in logistics. It's a marvelous story in some ways. He felt like if he could move the ripe banana faster than the current businesses, he could take these ripe bananas and turn a profit. This is capitalism. This is the beauty of capitalism. It's capitalism at its finest. I love it in some ways. So the first time he did it, he's a teenager. He's jumping on railroads, rail, rail cars. He's riding a bicycle. He's doing all this stuff. He turned a $40 profit, that $40 profit in the early 1900s on the first time he moved these ripe bananas. He did. It was, it's a marvelous story. And so it was stressful. The margins were small. But he realized that the world of ripe bananas, it, bananas, it was wide open. It was, it was wide open. And he could do it through, if he could do it through genetic. Uh, logistics, he could win. He could win. That's capitalism at its finest. So the rest is history. By his 21st birthday, he's a millionaire. 21st birthday, he's a millionaire. And in the peak, United Fruit, in the peak, it employed 100,000 people worldwide. And he was clearing at the peak of that company. They were clearing. They were profiting some $66 million a year along those lines. That's equivalent to about $660 million a year right now. If you don't know anything about business, that's pretty strong for the fruit and for the banana market. Okay? That's pretty strong in the early, in, for the banana market. $660 million a year. But this is it. Over the years, the company experienced all kind of issues. Zamuri, he would retire from the banana trade. And the entire thing would go downhill. The whole enterprise, it was riddled with lawsuits and foreign issues, foreign disputes. It just was a mess. It was a, I think it was acquired and folded into another larger umbrella. But anyway, someone wrote about life in general. Hear this. They said this about life. Some of you have lived this. It says that life is like this. You leave the house in the morning, you're young and you're fit and you're strong and you whistle as you walk down the street. And then you turn the corner and bang! You run right into your old, decrepit self going the other way. That's how they describe life. He said, what he means by this is that life is a flash. It moves at warp speed, and it can leave you cynical. It can leave you cynical. This was apparently the experience of Zamuri here, because he blinked, and it was all at once. He was the most pow- one of the most powerful men on earth, and then the next day he was retired. It's, it was said of him, this, this, this is grievous to me. It was said of him that he was like a man who was wandering through a mansion, closing doors, because at a certain age, no matter what direction you walk, you're walking away. I read that and it almost took my breath away. Listen to me. Zamuri's experience in this life left him with an empty feeling of walking away. This idea is not in the Christian purview. This is not... 
part of the Christian experience. Zamuri's experience is due in part to misguided and incorrectly oriented values with respect to wealth and his time. The Christian does not walk away when he grows old and comes to the end of his life. By God, he walks into his eternal reward. The Christian doesn't walk away when he grows old and leaves this earth. He walks into the presence of God and the eternal reward. It seems from this story that Zamuri was a man that did not make investments of any sort upon this earth for purposes of eternity. You see that? And the kicker to all of it is, is you don't have to be a millionaire to get here. So here's the question. What are you doing today with your finances and with your time that influences eternity through the local church? Paul is talking about the local church here. He's not talking about parachurch organizations or your alumni or the Rotary Club. I'm personally vested in all of those things and those type of things. I think they're wonderful. I love them. But the local church is the mother. It's the bride of Christ. And Paul is giving directive here. It's the pinnacle of God's activity on this earth. What are you doing today that will help you avoid the experience of this man? You don't have to be a millionaire to end up here. You don't. So here's the key statement. What you do on this earth as a Christian in the local church, it has an effect on the life to come. It has an effect on eternity. How do we correctly orient what we do with one of the single most challenging aspects of life, money, wealth, and riches? Through the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, God is calling us to reorient the value we place on money in order to live generously and make an impact upon eternity. God is calling people to himself in order to restore the earth and gather his children. The gospel proclamation is the central feature of that restoration in the local church, which is the crown jewel of the gospel. Grace on the Ashley is part of that story. It's part of that story. My friends, by God, it takes generosity. It takes generosity. I don't know any other way to say it. Let's keep it real for a moment. Paul knows that the kingdom of God advances in part via generosity, via finances. He knows this. Anyone that doesn't acknowledge that from my position is not being intellectually forthright with you. They're sidestepping the elephant in the room. And quite frankly, they're at times avoiding a discussion about a sensitive topic through over-spiritualized words of nothingness. In other words, they ain't shooting straight. Conversely, they either... The other false teachers, which Paul deals with in here, you'll see this in chapter 6, they manipulate you to the extreme in order to buy things like Gulfstream CG650 jets. Whatever that even means. I think they advertise them that they fly at 90% the speed of light or some silly nonsense. Anyway, so I've yet to discuss with the elders my plans to buy a G650 jet. So if you stroke a check today and in the memo put the new jet, it ain't happening. It's nonsense. And Paul deals with that in here. But is salvation unto God? Yes. Can God do whatever he wants aside from money? I'm sure he can. But God, in his kindness and by his good pleasure, he chose to call you and I to get in on the work and make a heavenly impact by orienting your value of money 
by reorienting your value of money so that we long to make an impact upon eternity. If you are a Christian, you have to wrestle with this. You do. You can't get around it. There's no getting around this. Jesus ties finances into the idea of the inner person or godliness. You have to deal with that. You have to deal with it. Met with the WM ladies on Tuesday of this week. I told them 3,150 unengaged and unreached people groups in this world. 220 million people have no concept of what the Holy Bible is. They have no concept of what Jesus is. 220 million. That is 43 times the population of South Carolina. They have no idea who Jesus is. If they depart this earth right now, we believe the Bible says that they will spend eternity separated from God. 220 million people. Is anybody in here okay with that? Anybody? If they depart this earth right now, we believe they will spend eternity separated from God. This church is called to reach those people. Not some other church, this church. It takes generosity to reach these people. We can cloak it in all kinds of spiritual language and sidestep the issue, but the bottom line is that these people will never enjoy the hope that you and I have without intentional generosity. You want to avoid arrogance and dependence? Give your life to the gospel movement. All of it. All of it. We've got to press. I love you, but we have got to press. We've got to press. What you do on this earth as a Christian... In the local church, it has an effect on the life to come. It has an effect on eternity. How do we correctly orient what we do with one of the most challenging aspects of life, money, wealth, and riches? Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we reorient the value we place on finances and money in order to live with an open hand to make an impact upon eternity. May the Holy Spirit... Stoke the fire of enthusiasm. May rattle us to the core. May awaken a desire for eternal impact. May we long to impact eternity through generosity for purposes of gospel proclamation to God's glory alone. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Precious Father, I'm thankful for your truths and scriptures. They're difficult. We navigate them the best way that we know possible. So I pray now that by your Spirit that you make application to our lives. That you change us, Father. We know that Jesus made some radical statements. He calls us to a lifestyle that's countercultural. He calls us to a lifestyle that runs in contradiction to the way we feel oftentimes, Father. So I pray, God, give us strength. Give us strength to live and to operate with an eternal perspective. Give us the courage, Father, to live with eternity in mind. Because we know that so much hangs in the balance. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.